The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is brought to you by the Society of Economic Geologists and is sponsored by Goldspot Discoveries. You can listen on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. I'm Ann Thompson, a partner in PetroScience Consultants, and I am your host for this episode. We kicked off this season last week with an episode on the human factors that influence how we navigate our jobs and careers, and it's well worth a listen. Today, we dig into the puzzles of Placer Gold. From an epic story of deposit models and the Witwatersrand in South Africa, to applying geochemical data for exploration in a paleoplacer environment, and finish with a very cool venture that is using modern placer gold mining for net gains in biodiversity. For one of the great stories of science and ore deposit models, I spoke to Professor Hartwig Frimmel at the University of Würzburg in Germany. This is a puzzle that Hartwig had a significant role in unraveling. It's a story that's fascinated me throughout my career from the late 1970s through the 80s and 90s, as the passionate debates over the origin of gold in the Witwatersrand continued. But first, Hartwig and I started our conversation with the scale and size of the Wits. A lot of people refer to it as a deposit, but that's of course wrong because it's an ore district consisting of, well, actually up to nine different gold fields and each gold field has a whole bunch of deposits in it. So yes, it is an ore district. It's massive. And for those who like to think about big numbers, how much gold has come out of it? Well, um, <laughs> do we even know? <laughs> that, that, that's all relative, I guess. But so far, about 53,000 tons of gold. And if you compare this with the total amount of gold that has ever been mined in history, then this is close to one third of all the gold that has ever been mined. It's kind of hard to get your head around and, and in production for over 100 years. So I want to step back again and, and look at you. And so how, how did Hartford get engaged with this great geological adventure? <laughs> well, it all started in 1989 when I joined the University of Cape Town as a young lecturer. Um, so I got employed at UCT as a metamorphic petrologist. And my experience at that stage was more sort of in the field of isotope geochemistry. I had worked a little bit on hydrothermal uh, base metal deposits. But to be honest, I had no clue whatsoever about gold deposits. So that was my start in, uh, in Cape Town. And a couple of months later, in 1990, um, Cape Town hosted the Geo Congress which uh, used to be quite a big event on the South African geo calendar. And uh, as you know, young lecturers have very little choice. Uh, they have to do whatever their bosses tell them. And so I had to follow the big command given to me by my senior colleague, the big professor in economic geology, Laurie Minter. He told me to organize and run a workshop on the Wittbotus and gold deposits as part of the Geo Congress. And, uh, well, I felt a bit dumb and uh, I felt like a terrible fool and didn't really know how to deal with the situation. So I thought, well, I can't pretend being a gold expert. Yeah, that, that, that would be just ridiculous. So I admitted to know nothing about the wits in particular and about gold in general. And thought, well, but that gives me one advantage. That is, being the outsider, being the uninformed, gives me the right to ask stupid questions. So I saw my role as a facilitator rather than as a lecturer at this workshop and I put together a whole bunch of very basic questions, which I thought, well, with this, I will spend the first 15 minutes just to kickstart the workshop to trigger some discussion. 
Anyhow, at the end of the day, I don't know how many hours later, I still didn't have a satisfying answer to one single one of my questions. And I thought, well, wow, there's some research to be done. That's a research field that could pay off. And so it did. So that was really the beginning. It's what we would now call innovation, bringing somebody in from the outside. And, and so you saw things differently. Well, let's give people an idea again. So we have scale, but what about age of this mineralization? Well, the age of the gold, that's, of course, a big matter of debate because that depends on what kind of genetic model you fancy for the gold. But the age of the host rocks, uh, let's start with that, is Mesoarchean. So we are talking about sedimentary rocks that are about 2.9 to 2.8 billion years in age. The Witwatersrand Basin is, for those listeners here who might be not too familiar with the Witwatersrand, uh, let me say that the Witz Basin is a world record holder in, in many respects. Uh, we've talked already about the amount of gold that has come out of the basin, which was, well, it's just by far the biggest gold anomaly that we know of in the Earth's crust. And as mentioned, 53,000 tons of gold. But let's bear in mind that could be another 30,000, 40,000 tons of gold in the ground. So that's not a reserve. That's a resource at best. But it just shows how much gold uh, got concentrated in this Archean basin. It was a debate then. Well, <laughs> seeing that the gold is hosted by sedimentary rocks, essentially conglomerates, the mineralization is almost perfectly stratiform and strata-bound, largely fluvial conglomerates. So obviously, the general thinking of those who mined the Witwatersrand gold has been, sure, that's syngenetic, plus the origin. But then, as with many big topics in, the, in, in economic geology, and probably not only in economic geology, genetic models tend to change with time. And there are certain times when certain models tend to be in fashion. You mentioned the 1970s, 1980s. Well, remember, in the 1970s, everything was syngenetic. And then in the 1980s, 90s, there was a lot of emphasis on metamorphism. That was sort of the, the peak time of metamorphic research, I would say. And crustal fluids, that was all of a sudden the buzzword. And everything became fluids-driven in this world. And the Witz was no exception. So in the 1980s, 1990s, uh, emphasis was placed on the metamorphism of these rocks, on the amount of alteration in these rocks. And it didn't take long. And the suggestion came up, well, all that gold came into these host conglomerates um, much, much later, long after the sediment deposition by infiltrating fluids from wherever. So we had this big debate between the syngeneticists and the epigeneticists the plasterists and the hydrothermalists. You still had an issue of where the gold came from, even with the Indeed. epigenetic. Absolutely. Right? Yes. Like that's, that's if you're leaching fluids or whatever, where are you getting all that gold from? The problem was, and that's when I came to South Africa and was confronted with this debate, listening to both schools of thought, they were both right. They both had excellent arguments for their story. On a large scale, Sure, the mentioned stratiform strata-bound mode of occurrence was in support of a plaster model. Also, the mineralogic association of the gold with other heavy minerals, such as zircon, rounded pyrite, uraninite, chromite, and so on. But those who look down a microscope, they say, well, that's total nonsense. Because the way the gold occurs in the rock is in well, what we would call a late textual position, filling cracks, Filling, uh, forming inclusions in secondary hydrothermal pyrite or with metamorphic or hydrothermal chloride and so on. So on a micro scale, everything spoke for a hydrothermal origin. On a macro scale, a lot of things spoke for a plaster origin. This contrast between scales and what you see at different scales is, is like a never-ending problem in geology. It's not Absolutely. the only yes. time. I mean, this is huge. This is obviously much bigger, but, but it happens all the time. And you, you just kind of discount one or the other and, and use your bias to push you in the direction that you feel. In, in all fairness, I should also mention that in those days, uh, 1990s, there was another idea, very popular. And well, let's bear in mind that the Witwatersrand Basin, the world's by far largest gold anomaly, is located right next to the Bushveld complex which is the world's largest PGE anomaly. And then if you look on the geological map, right bang in the middle of the Witz Basin, there's a huge impact crater, the Fredefoot Dome. 
which is actually the biggest impact crater that we know of. Now, surely that can't be coincidence. A lot of people said that cannot be coincidence. But with better and better geochronological methods evolving, and of course, every imaginable method was applied to Bidwater's Red Rocks, as you can imagine, um, the, the issue was far too big not to do that. So with more precise age data, we learned, no, tough luck, it is coincidence. Because the gold is a few hundred billion years older than the impact. And even between the Bushfield event and the Fairyfield impact event, there is a time gap of uh, some 30 million years. But coming back to the, to the question of scale, what we did in the 90s largely was we looked at the microscale very carefully. And there I was extremely lucky. I mean, sometimes you just have to be lucky in your career. And that luck brought me the probably most important hand specimen that has ever been collected under its mines. It was a beautiful specimen because it actually had visible gold in it, displaying or defining nice cross bedding. So there was a perfect sedimentary feature. And on this hand specimen, we really applied every single method that had been invented at that time. Um, so you, we did everything, yeah? the mineralogy, the texture, the chemistry, the isotopes, the fluid inclusions, you name it. And it became pretty clear there are two generations of gold in this sample. Little nuggets, clearly mechanically abraded uh, particles, and then clearly hydrothermal secondary gold. That was a bit of a first breakthrough because now we could show that, well, actually, once you start looking, you see this with all the other minerals as well, whether that's pyrite, whether that's the uranium minerals, even hydrocarbons. There's always a detrital or a syngenetic component, and there is a hydrothermal component. So in other words, these rocks have seen some mobilization of their ore components in the course of the history. And the history is quite complex. In fact, that's the role of the impact. I mean, the Fredervoort impact hammered these rocks, fractured them everywhere, even in places forming pseudotachylites. And of course, that's triggered a lot of fluid flow and caused a lot of mobilization of the ore components. But from an economic point of view, the critical thing, of course, was, is this mobilization short range or long range? And all our observations pointed towards short-range mobilization. So in other words, from an economic point of view, that was completely irrelevant because the primary control on the distribution of the gold remains a sedimentological one. I mean, of course, let's face it, this debate was largely driven by also by personal bias. And what was your bias? Your bias still take you into the metamorphic <laughs> and the epigenetic world? Well, I, as I said, I came as a metamorphic metrologist. Uh, all my previous work was on crustal fluids, quantifying fluid rock uh, interaction and these sort of things. I was not a sedimentologist. But I learned in the course of my Witwatersrand studies that actually, sorry if I say this now, but I think the debate on the genesis of the Witz gold is possibly the most beautiful example of how not to do science because it was driven by bias in the sense that a lot of people who were pushing for one or the other model, they had a vested interest in a specific outcome of their research. After the 1970s, when everything, everybody agreed, well, the Witz gold is, is plaster gold. If you wanted to make an academic career, you had to come up with a new concept. You had to come up with a new idea. So the hydrothermal model was the new idea. On the industry side, industry was very much pushing for the hydrothermal model for a very simple reason, because it meant money. With the plaster model, what kind of exploration strategy should they, should they follow? There was nothing new to discover, basically. But if you say, no, no, this plaster model was nonsense, we actually have a completely different genetic explanation then all of a sudden, the entire world opens up for exploration for potential second bit water's rent. And that's what the people were after. And so if you wanted to do exploration, you needed to have a new model that is applicable to the whole world and not only to a few Achaean cratons. That's the reason why many mining houses, they really pushed hard for the, for the hydrothermal model and they didn't like our story at all. You're so right. I mean, and we still get driven in that direction in exploration and certainly in academia to produce the model. The model creates careers and even you see it over and over again. When you get to that last slide where there has to be the model, there has to be the, the cartoon that is the contribution. But is, is that the contribution or is it something else? And, well, and I think we do push 
we push too hard to to make that always to get to that. I point. couldn't agree more with you. Yes, uh, because if we try to do research with a preconceived idea or conception, then it's going to be poor research. And I think the Wits was a prime example. Uh, to tell you the truth, although I'm probably made my name partly through my research on the Witwatersrand gold, it has always been a hobby of mine. I never had a big proper research program focused on the Witwatersrand history. It was always a sideline of my research, but that gave me a huge advantage because I personally, I, I couldn't care less about the origin of the Witwatersrand gold. It didn't define you, but it's a heck of a sideline. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, ultimately, uh, let's be honest, all these hypotheses and genetic models we, we tend to develop over a career or over a lifetime or whatever period, Maybe they will turn out to be all nonsense anyway. Maybe. Whether, whether the gold in the bits is now uh, a placer gold or hydrothermal gold or a combination of both, this is essentially an academic issue at the first glance. But of course, there's an economic side to it. So the bigger question is really, well, how does mankind benefit from this kind of debate? And in that sense, I would, I dare say that the verdict uh, on this, in this fight Syngenetic versus epigenetic couldn't be clearer, couldn't be better. Because for more than 100 years, the miners have damn successfully managed to find gold, to find new ore bodies using a plaster model. And we now have the hydrothermal model floating around for something like three decades. And in these 30 years, I could not think of a single ore body that has been discovered anywhere in the world based on a hydrothermal model for Witwatersrand-type gold mineralization. And I would say that pretty much answers the, the question. <laughs> it really does. It goes a long ways. Yeah. So where has it come to now? Isn't there a, a, a last piece of the puzzle? When you came back in recent years, uh, where does the, the bitumen fit in or the biomineralization? Is that a key part of this, this whole puzzle? In my opinion, it is the key part. But... That's something I was not aware of for a long time. So to be honest, some 20 years ago, I think we sort of clarified this whole issue between syngenetic versus epigenetic. And we found that what we call the modified paleoplaster model explains best all the available data and observations. But the one big issue that remains, and that was where the source, you mentioned it earlier on, you asked, where's the source of all that gold? We're talking about roughly 90,000 tons of gold. Where did that come from if it was placer gold? And for many years, many of us, and including myself, looked for this source in the completely wrong places because we were, we were impressed by, well, what we call the actualistic principles. We thought a placer deposit in the Archean forms in the same way as a placer deposit formed in the tertiary. That is, we have somewhere a gold deposit that gets eroded, and then somewhere downstream, we have the accumulation of placer gold or somewhere in the nearby shore, wherever. And that idea, that concept, didn't work for the Witwatersrand because there's no evidence whatsoever for such a huge amount of gold deposits in the Paleo Mesoarchean. In fact, the Paleoarchean, up to 2.9 billion years early Mesoarchean, is strange enough a period. Uh, of time in which hardly any gold deposits formed. There's very little of gold deposits of that age around. So we didn't have a source, right? Right. And so in the last 10 years, I started to think about gold solubility in Archean waters. Because up to then, we made quite a bit of progress in our understanding of what the Archean environment might have looked like. Of course, there's still a lot of unknowns, but we know it had a reducing atmosphere and basically oxygen-free atmosphere. We know that uh, the rain that came out of the Archean clouds must have been very acid. We know that there was an elevated H2S content in the atmosphere. So if we take all these chemical parameters into account and look at gold solubility, then um, it turns out that the gold solubility under this perceived Archean environment would be about four orders of magnitude greater than today. Now, that's something... That's huge, that's huge actually. Well, and it makes a huge difference because all, all of a sudden, 
our source problem was gone because now we didn't need specific gold deposits in the hinterland. The entire Archean land surface became the source area. We didn't need anything special. We just needed ordinary background gold concentration in the regolith of the Archean land surface and leach the gold out of it. By the way, that's something I published in 2014 in an SCG special publication. I still think that was a critical turning point in the debate. Interestingly, Chris Heinrich from the ETH in Zurich, he sort of followed up on very similar uh, thoughts uh, at the same time, completely independently. And he came to a very similar conclusion. He published his stuff in 2015, if I remember correctly. He approached it more from a thermodynamic point of view, but the, the bottom line was effectively the same. Yes, Achaean meteoric waters had the capacity to dissolve a hell of a lot of gold. And uh, with that, we effectively have solved the source problem. But there was still one problem remaining. So we needed a trap. Now, you mentioned the word kerogen. Well, whether it's kerogen or not, we can debate. But one thing is for sure, we have known for a long time um, in some places in these gold fields in the Witwoten trend, there are the so-called carbon seams present. Thin millimeter, centimeter thick carbon layers, not to be confused with what the miners call the flyspeck carbon, which are carbon nodules that are sort of dispersed throughout the rocks. But these nodules, they are solidified oil. That's pyrobitumen. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But the origin of these carbon seams, that has been something that's, that was very controversial. Maybe it still is. And we did quite a bit of uh, organic chemical work on this, isotope analysis, but also uh, fantastic textual observations clearly spoke and still speak for these carbon seams to represent in situ microbial mats. And these carbon seams are in places incre incredibly rich in gold. And some of the reefs, some 50% of, of all the gold actually came out of the carbon seams and not out of the conglomerates. So they are critical. And putting one and one together, I thought, well, here we've got the fantastic trap. If these are microbial mats, for which we have plenty of evidence. And just imagine that these are sort of the first photosynthesizing microbes that evolved on our planet, giving off a few molecules of oxygen into a reducing atmosphere. And you have gold flowing, gold dissolved, gold sulfide flowing <laughs> over these microbial mats. Oh, of course, this gold is going to be precipitated spot on straight on the surfaces of these mats. So I think... That was the first big, big trap that uh, bound huge amounts of gold. Of course, only very little of that is preserved uh, because what's the preservation potential of a microbial mat? You've got a storm, you've got a flooding event, and these microbial mats get me mechanically reworked. But that reworking in turn now makes a, a freeze up these minute gold particles from the microbial mats and they get now mechanically eroded, abraded, uh, reshaped, and downstream deposited as very fine-grained plaster gold. That was basically the story that uh, we developed over the last few years. And at least for the moment, it seems to be the model that explains best all the huge amount of uh, data and observations. Excellent. Well, this has, it's been a grand tour. It's been a grand tour of science and economic geology and exploration and gold. And yeah, definitely not, not over yet. I mean, you're absolutely great. right. There's a lot of things we still don't know about the Archean world. I mean, nobody has been there uh, and it's going to be very difficult to find, a, uh, to, to come even close yeah. to the truth probably. Um, but that's the beauty of science. Yeah? I mean, it's, it's, uh, we're we all forensic scientists and we're just trying to put the puzzle together. Um, uh, we will never get the full picture. From the Archean of South Africa, we head to the Proterozoic in Brazil to learn about active exploration in another Paleoplaster environment. To talk us through this story, I reached out to Britt Blumel at Goldspot Discoveries. First off, though, how does she end up as a geochemist working with big data packages and machine learning? How did I end up doing the work that I do now? I have been doing geochemistry kind of straight out of the gate when I finished my, uh, my undergrad in sort of traditional normal geosciences. And 
after that, I was very fortunate to be sort of taken under the wing of a group of, of world-class geochemists that at that time were called IO Global, and they were a, a group of consulting geochemists. And so I started learning with them and have just proceeded on this geochemical path since then. Did you have any idea when you're doing undergraduate sciences that that's what you were interested in? To be honest, I actually wanted to be a chemist, but the more chemists I met, the more I realized I wasn't they weren't really my people. I wasn't too familiar with, with them and I didn't really want to be friends with the chemists. And then I met the geologists and was like, oh, oh, you guys are my people. So maybe I can just combine these, the things that I love about chemistry and the things that I love about geology. And then someone like a year later was like, haven't you thought of geochemistry? And I was like, what? That's a thing. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of how I proceeded down that path. What have you been working on most recently? So I joined up with Goldspot just pre-pandemic, so in January 2020, which was a really good time to start working for a data consultancy group because when everybody slowed down in terms of their field planning programs last spring, they decided they were going to look at their data for the first time because people had breathing room because they weren't busy running out into the field. And so everyone started looking at their data and, and realized that it's more complicated than perhaps they originally thought. And so they thought, let's get some data experts in here. And then they turned to Goldspot. But what I've been working on most recently with Goldspot is that uh, the paleoplastic gold deposit in Brazil called Castelo de Sanos. So that belongs to TriStar Gold. One of the, the pieces that makes Castelo de Sanos a bit more challenging is because it's old and it's been deformed, it's not just fresh conglomerates around, it's all meta conglomerates and there's been folding and remobilization and other kinds of things like that. So we got involved with TriStar at Castelo de Sonos uh, in April 2020. So it's been just over a year now. And the real challenge at Esperanza South, um, which is the part of Castelo de Sonos that I was looking at in close detail, was that the controls on the mineralization there are primarily due to the depositional environment, which is common in paleoplastic gold deposits. And so knowledge of that detailed stratigraphy is critical to building a reliable model. The challenge is that at Castello de Sonios, the, met the metasediments are all sourced from similar host rocks. So right. it's a series of repeating and overlapping sequences that in many cases are only distinguishable by changes in texture. So it's one of, you know, it's a really, really challenging deposit to, to log visually. So there have been lots of uh, analogs drawn between Castelo de Sanos in Brazil and Tarqua over in Africa. And um, are they linked geologically? Yeah, I would say that there are certainly lots of similarities. And certainly some of the geologists that have carefully logged both Tarqua and Castelo de Sanos see lots of similarities between the two. So I would say one of the main differences of Castello de Sanos is that there was an absence of a, a really good, clear marker horizon to place yourself in the stratigraphy, uh, which, which Tarqua has. So that makes Tarqua um, a bit more, I don't want to say it's easy, certainly it's not easy, but it just made it a bit more straightforward to log because you could always place yourself at that marker horizon. Right, right. So even with post-deformation and, and all the rest of it, you could find yourself as you're as you're going through the rocks yeah exactly. so they were lost they needed some new way of figuring out where they were within the sequence that's right and so previously they were um, measuring gold in, in all of their drilling which is standard and normal and they've got a huge suite of excellent high quality gold analyses but the problem with paleoplastic deposits and like lots of gold deposits is that it can be quite nuggety. So it's really hard to use gold to try and, and create any kind of stratigraphic model. So just before Goldspot got involved, they said, okay, we're going to try a new kind of geochemistry. So they decided they were going to start doing aqua regia digestion with an ICPMS finish. And so we started by looking at those kinds of slightly more um, like more weak or more, more mild digestions. And I think there was five holes that we looked at to start there. And that was really useful. We were able to see different groupings of, of chemically similar rocks and, and alteration styles. Like I could see silicification and calcification and it was useful for pulling apart end members. But there was still that challenge of being able to differentiate within that, within that main sedimentary pile. So those, those repeating and overlapping sequences that were only distinguishable by changes in texture. So that still looked with the aquaregia digestion with the, the more weak acid chemistry, that still looked like one kind of big geochemical, I should say, blob. 
So looking at the Aquarita data was, was great uh, in terms of the data assessment, but the differences were too subtle to be able to pull out from this weak digestion. So when the TriStar, and this was huge of them to make this decision, they, they said, okay, we're going to do four acid digestion on just a few holes just to see. And it was right away quite obvious that there was more differentiation that we could do with the stronger uh, the stronger acid digestion. So they went and moved forward and then we got you know 10 more holes and then 20 more holes and now we have a data set of over 500 drill holes that are top to bottom. So what kind what kind of elements are you getting from that that you didn't have in your original chemistry? Originally they were just looking at gold, but some of the elements that were really useful that we got with the four acid digestion that we didn't get with the we didn't get high quality with the ICPMS finish and the aquaridia digestion was like titanium and zirconium and other right. elements that were right. more common at, in resistant minerals like uranium and thorium as well. So elements more commonly used in lithogeochemistry and exactly and rock formations, right? So they went back and sampled old holes that they already had. Yeah, the pulps were actually at the lab. So they had sent them to the lab to do gold. And then they said, well, you guys still have the pulp, so go ahead and do the four acids. So we were able to resample and reanalyze old, well, not old. They weren't like historic drill holes, but, but right. previous drill holes, like from the previous year. But still, that's a fairly big bill to do that. Oh, boy. Totally. <laughs> like it was, it was a huge decision for them to have made in terms of, of cost for the project. Absolutely. But what they gained out of it at the end of the day, they basically doubled their um, indicated resource. So, so they got that. Right. <laughs> so it was all worth it at the end. So you're there with a whole whack of data. That's and right. then what happened? What's the next part of the puzzle? So we got this whole whack of data. And then I usually start with with iogas, so that's geochemical analysis software. It's made by a company called Reflex Now or Index Group, I believe is what I've called at this moment. Um, and the nice thing about gas is that it helps you really quickly identify problems in your data and start to do exploratory data analysis. So I was doing, you know, some data cleaning and some EDA and some data transformations and some clustering starting in gas. But then from there, once you have a, a kind of understanding for the different elements that are at play and maybe which groupings or combinations of elements might be useful later, then you can move over into some more fancy kind of data analytics platforms and do some real machine learning. But I always start in terms of, of geochemical analysis, I always start in IOGAS and just kind of like play around with the data and see what it tells me. It's, it's very data driven. So it's, it's driven by what you're seeing. And, and I guess you're introducing some of your own bias into it at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, you're you're looking at what you think is valuable and what isn't valuable just by your absolutely. experience. Yeah, for sure. And I would say my bias would come in and, and many geochemists would be in selecting subsets of element groupings. So, I mean, it, it's not necessarily reasonable to look at all of the elements all the time, um, but we certainly try to. Right. So you're not just taking all this data and throwing it into a soup and stirring it up and just see what comes out, right? <laughs> well, I think that's what people think machine learning is. Oh, man. I, I, I completely agree with you. I think that is what people think machine learning is. And that's taking all the data, throwing it into a soup and seeing what comes out is a really good way of getting a really bad product. Exactly. And then instead, you're just taking very selected ingredients and making a very fine soup that's Totally. You know, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you have, if you want machine learning to do anything for you, or even just traditional geochemical analysis, you have to come into it with a question that you're hoping to answer. So if your question is about lithogeochemistry, then you want to just select your immobile elements, for example, or, or your rock forming elements, and you don't want to include your alteration elements. If you just take everything and you whack it in there and you pull some pathfinders in there too, you're going to get, uh, it'll get some kind of pattern, but it'll be really hard to interpret and make any sense of. For sure. And machine learning is just the same. So in this deposit, is there no remobilization or epigenetic factors at all? Is it really simply paleoplacer? There is a really good question. So there's lots of areas that have uh, some hematite alteration. And then there's a sort of three separate styles that, that I'm aware of, three separate styles of, of gold at Castello de Sanius. There's the classic paleoplacer gold. There's other other gold that's associated with hematite alteration. And then there's a third that is within quartz veins, like healed quartz veins, uh, proximal to mafic intrusions and other felsic intrusions, and in some cases, some faults. So there's, there's lots of different 
types of gold around in Castella de Sanios as well. But yes, there is some, some metamorphism and remobilization too. But presumably your your methodology is still helping with that, or is it mostly finding the zones of Placer original and then by association you you may find the other types? Yeah, we what we were really setting out to do in the beginning was to create a sequence stratigraphy and a chemostratigraphic model. So we could create a geological model. And the real benefit of that was that we could interpret erosional surfaces and create more accurate geologically based grade domains. So what we really wanted to do was create that geological model. Is it been mostly valuable in terms of the exploration and and finding the broad areas, or is it being really valuable in the more detailed deposit modeling? My passion is with exploration geology. So I would say, that, and I'll reveal my bias here, that what we were able to create, and this was also with my colleague, uh, Vivienne Janvier, it was a geological map of the entire plateau. So the work that I did was just in a, like the drilling area at Esperanza South, but taking that information that we were able to unpick and unravel and understand from the deposit there, where that reached the surface, we could then take that learning and apply it to the rest of the plateau. And we were using geophysics like uh, radiometrics and magnetics to create uh, a full cohesive geological map of the entire region. And then that will be really useful for exploration moving forward. That's excellent. Getting to that piece where you're actually combining the data sets and and creating something that's large scale. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. It took to a do long that, time. To work. Yeah. And throughout that time, we were getting more and more data inputs as data was coming back, and geochemical data, I should say, that was coming back right. from the laboratory. So that was, it was really an ongoing iterative process. And then at the end of the day, what we created for them was actually a machine learning model that they can use themselves. That was always the goal was to create a, a random forest algorithm that they can take their new incoming for acid data, plug it into the algorithm, and then just watch their, their chemostratigraphy kind of grow outwards. And Populate we'll do, itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but we'll certainly still be involved throughout that because as, as they encounter new units, those units will classify poorly or they'll have a low classification accuracy. And that will mean that it doesn't really fit into one of the seven buckets that we originally defined. It's a different thing. So we'll have to go back at that time and redefine some new buckets. So we're talking about the scale of the, of the plateau. How big is this? region that, that you've been working in? The geological model itself is, is quite limited in terms of the size of the entire plateau. The geological model is only about two kilometers long and one kilometer wide. But the entire plateau is about 14 kilometers across and then about 22 kilometers long. Thinking about exploration across the entire plateau, I, I would say I mean, the, the machine learning map that we created, would, or we, should, we could call it a machine-assisted map because there was lots of human input uh, but this machine-assisted geological map that we made was really great. I really liked the result. But in terms of exploration and prospectivity, I don't think that we really could get much better than just going and watching for where the, the local artisanal miners, the Grimpos, are. Like, that's one of that's the... That's still a fundamental <laughs> tool, isn't it, for all of us? Yeah. best tool. That, so, I mean, that together with the, with the machine-assisted geological map would be... I would, I would use that as my... Right. So, room for more... Absolutely. Yeah, there's right. a lot of potential. Yeah. Next up, we shift our view to Alaska, British Columbia, and the Yukon, where historically placer gold mining had a huge impact. This next story is about an innovative venture named Salmon Gold, and it offers us a new model, a solution, if you will, to the puzzle of how to create net benefit from legacy mining. I spoke to Steve Desposito president and CEO of Resolve, based in Washington, D.C. And I started by asking him, what does Resolve do? So Resolve is a non-governmental organization, an NGO. We work on public health issues, so we've worked in COVID response, you know, like giving PPE to communities who couldn't get their hands on it. Um, and we work in protection and conservation, so we developed an anti-poaching cryptic camera that can 
tries to and can catch poachers before they poach. And then we work on sustainable production and sustainable development. So that's where this salmon gold piece fits into the picture. And I, my background is um, I'm based in Washington, D.C. I am uh, trained in political science, but really trained in, in strategy and advocacy, how to move issues ahead. And then at Resolve, I spend a lot of time working on solutions that you can, you know, you can find a solution that just one <laughs> company or one, one nonprofit wants to implement or one community, but we try to find solutions that we can bring different parties together around to be part of. That's kind of the, that's our stock and trade. Obviously, hugely valuable and, and impactful. So I think we just have to tell people what is Salmon Gold. It has such a great name. Yeah. Like I, I'll buy it just based <laughs> on the name, right? It sounds like it's sustainable and good. <laughs> and I'm sure it's wild salmon too, right? So it's really good. <laughs> it's wild gold. Yeah, so the so salmon's tame. The, the, the gold's wild, yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. The Salmon yeah. Gold is, uh, it's a few things, right? It's It's a return to historically impacted mining areas. I was working on um, trying to help jewelers put responsible gold in their supply chain about a decade ago, and still am, but I flew over to Placer Tailings up in the Yukon, and I was, I was like, we need to do something with that tailings, right? I mean, when you see it from the air, the scale, the scale is is way more. And most people associate Placer with a guy yeah. in, a, in a pan, yeah. in the, just in this small stream and not the hydraulic massive destruction of whole valleys and yeah. and rivers. Well, and so to your point, to my point, I flew over and I was like, it just and the helicopter just went going and going and going. And there's this tailing, right? And so um, that stuck with me. And then I was working on issues in Alaska around salmon, protection of salmon habitat related to mining, like how you balance the two. Can you? This is more industrial scale. And then and then we're looking at these maps and I'm like, wait a second, those streams that are impacted by Placer, many of them used historically were salmon bearing streams. And so then the light bulb went off and I was like, well, we can, we can do more than kind of responsibly produce gold from Placer. Can we do that plus put things back the way they were? Is that even possible? Like thinking about the hundred year trajectory of this, you know? And so my first idea was let's, try to get the gold out of what's left of the tailing and then let's use the profit to fund the restoration. Well, that doesn't really work very well because there's not that much profit and you got to pay the miner, gotta, the miner has to pay their bill or you have to pay your bill if you're the miner and make your profit. And so you have to come up with some other model. So that's the, that's the kind of the instigation of it or the thinking was like, let's figure out a way to fix this. And so what I did is I reworked it a little bit. I kept at it. And what we came up with was, Let's find the placer miners who are doing the re remining these areas and let's talk with them about, yes, we're not going to come up with some new model probably where we can, where we make a, make it, make it a you know, green gold by using all the profit by, by doing a restoration. That's probably not scalable or viable, but what about finding some miners who are doing it already <laughs> and some who may be doing parts of or all of a restoration play and can we work with them? And so is there a way to partner with the plaster mining community to go back into these areas that some of whom are already there going back in and then adding the restoration layer? And so that's kind of the idea. And we found some miners who were interested. Some of them were on their own trying some things out and some were working with other stream experts and government agencies. And so we just kind of plugged into that. So it's really this combo effort of let's find a way to not just do the remining and do the, what we call the reclamation. That's what the government would require you to do with the stream. We try to go beyond that and say, what does the stream really need to be viable? And then, and then we have to fund that, right? So we go out. And so I found this is where the supply chain piece gets interesting. I, you know, I, I managed to interest both Apple and Tiffany and company, the jeweler. But then what we had to do is convince Apple and Tiffany to come in. And I say to them, look, this is a coin toss, 50-50 chance this is going to succeed. You could end up partnering with us and investing money in the startup, and we get nowhere. But if it's successful, we think it will have significant value, and, and we've, we've been successful. I mean, I think we have a lot more success to have, but we've been pretty successful. 
and we produce gold for three summers. The gold is in Apple and Tiffany products, and we we transact it through the supply chain to get it in their products. We make restoration plans and track them and see how we're doing, and we you know share that around with other miners and the regulators, and we walk the streams and talk to people and try to make the, <laughs> the world a better place. That's basically the deal. Well, if without that ambition, we're not going to do anything different, are we? Like yeah. making the world a better place is what it's all about. Yeah. So how are you tracking? So it gets dug out of the of the creek and, and then where does the gold go or how is it tracked? Well, we haven't yet gotten to the point where we have the particular product, right? Connection, because that's right. a bit complex but and costly. But But what we do is we say, okay, the miner who we partner with, we work on an agreement between them and Apple or Tiffany for purchasing their gold. And then we have to go through a whole bunch of due diligence. <laughs> That's more significant than most plowshare miners in the Yukon and British Columbia and Alaska typically produce. They, they, it's not like they don't have it. It's just that they haven't put it all in a file together right? and sent it across. So it takes a little work actually to get all that together. Because in the case of Apple, we're shipping it to Switzerland. And then it's going into Apple's products. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so it's a bit complicated, and but we, we it's a it's a paperwork exercise <laughs> first and foremost, and then we we track the paperwork, and then we literally like the miner takes it. You know the date. Um, there's a there's an app we use to you know to blockchain it across. Okay. And we know what it's in a street package. It gets. In certain size increments, it gets shipped to the refiner of choice of the two downstream companies, Apple and Tiffany, and then and then they then send it into the product line for our partner. That's the that's the way it works. It's it's a it sounds simple. It's quite complicated um, because typically in a plaster community, you're taking it to the local refining agent who is in right, Boston and it's just gone, and you don't yeah. have to worry about it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually one of the more it's it's one of the more it's one of the more challenging parts of the project, frankly. I remember working with artisanal miners in Indonesia, and the the locals just all took the gold to the local guy with literally the scale in his office and yeah. weighed it, and was like that that's it, gone. And you know everybody everybody has their their ways of doing things, and so for decades the miners have done. There's a couple of people you can go to to sell your gold and, you know, a <laughs> couple of companies and yeah. you do it and you know each other. There's like a trust relationship, right? And there's the spot price. You kind of, everybody knows sort of what right. the price is and what your gold is worth. And, and you've been, you've been training with the same guy for a gal for a decade or more maybe. And, and now here we come and <laughs> we're saying, oh no, we want to ship it to Switzerland <laughs> and you need to do all this paperwork too. <laughs> So, so what's been the motivation for the miners? Was it just because they already saw they needed to change how they were doing things, or well, what's the incentive there for them? One of the cool features of the project, I think, is that you know, in the beginning, anyway, where a lot of the miners are working with, we're doing parts of this already themselves, and so what we're doing is recognizing that they wanted to put the stream back in better shape, and we give them some additional tools and some kind of like guidance on how to do it better, and then we learn from what they need be we're already doing and and take that to another stream. And so they get recognition that's important to them. Right. And then there's pride in being part of this kind of a project. I mean, they have been interviewed for video news stories and for, for in in the print press, they're proud of what they're part of. Right. And they contribute and they talk a lot about it. And then they get a financial benefit because we, what we bring to them is is resources for the extra work. And so they get to use their equipment they already have, the tools they already have, and to each season they get some more funding to do some more restoration. And that's the model will succeed as we, if we can stand up that financial incentive to go with the feel good incentive and the reputational incentive. So so is that part of part of the restoration part is moving dirt around which is part of what they were doing to begin with too. Right. 
but we want them to do some more. Yeah. We want them to spend a few more days at it and a few more weeks at it. And uh, right, exactly, and money. maybe put in some rocks and logs and and change right. the stream bed a little bit. And yeah, right, more, do more rocks, stuff, right. logs. Yeah. Save them when you start. You know, when you start the mining. No, you know, pre-planning is fun, cost involved. Ultimately, underneath it all, I think that what what I'm seeing is that as the as social expectations increase, there's a recognition that this kind of a program is actually mutually beneficial, especially if everybody's involved. And so you're building new recognition and definitions of what responsible mining looks like. So it helps the reputation of the plaster mining community. But I think there's also, there's a, like a discovery story in what we're doing uh, once we get a little further along. I, I just think, like I said at the beginning, the scale of, of what's out there and what can be done is is pretty impressive the impact you could have so so you started in 2018 is that the first the first right? yeah well the first operation the first first project was 2018 one project let me expand it to three in 2019 okay yeah. so in terms of the process for the miner are they doing this all in one season in one area or is it over many years or typically I mean, it, it matches the life cycle of their and life of their plaster operation. And so if that particular area is a one year or one season play or a five season play, we're planning on that basis. So you're not changing their timeline or forcing it to be different. No, we, it's really, it's got to match up, right? It's got to be work in sequence. And what we're finding is, you know, in the beginning, it was a lot, it was a significant amount of extra work. The more we can get ready in advance, pre-plan, know what we want to try to achieve that summer, at the, especially at the end of the summer, then you can do things along the way that actually don't cost that much more in time. It may cost more in fuel and that kind of thing, but, you know, equipment, but not in time. Yeah, And we're learning. Like I have to be, you know, I've been very cautious with this project to not overstate what we're doing because restoration of streams for Anadromous species is a, both a science and an art, right? And, and, and there are things that, you know, the expert have suggested the plaster miners do that didn't work. And there are things that the plaster miners have said, well, let's try this and those work, right? So interesting to me is the, is the pride that is felt on the part of the miners, both in the mining they're doing, but also in, in this project. And, and it's really, it's compelling and it brings others to the table. It's really, it's pretty cool. Right. And even working with indigenous communities as well, First Nations in, yeah. in BC or elsewhere? In the Yukon, we've been working with First Nations. We started a project. We've engaged with First Nations to make sure they were aware and supportive. But we've asked them now, where do they want to target the restoration? And then we have a project we're starting right now in northern BC where the First Nation is working with the provincial government with some federal government support on a stream-wide restoration effort where we'll partner the funding we bring to the table will be leveraged and multiplied so we can tackle the whole, whole stream over. And this will be like a multi-year project that of historically impacted stream where there's some active mining and some okay. inactive mining. And so we'll be working in the active mining area and then the other funding will cover the inactive and, and it'll be our first streamlined project, which is really what, what we want to be doing, scaling up. So what have we missed? Challenges that you dealt with along the way? Maybe a part that's worth spending a little time on is that because we call it salmon gold, it actually can be send a limiting signal that, okay, we can only do this where there's, <laughs> where there's salmon and gold. And that's just not true. Right. And so, I mean, it's a compelling name, but it's also, what we're really thinking about is restoration gold or restoration minerals. That's really what we're talking about here. And I think the ultimate underneath it all is this idea that when you go into a community, whether you're an NGO or a mining company or an exploration company, you're walking into a community where something happened before. There's like a legacy, there's a history, there's positives and there's negatives. And so I think what the approach of restoration minerals concept is, is to take account of that and to think about what you can do to address, even though it wasn't, if you're the new company, the new NGO, like I didn't mess up the stream, right? But I can actually help think about, is there something I can do to help with that legacy? Because that opens up doors, it opens up possibilities, it opens up new thinking. 
And so for me, for like the mining industry, whether you're it's an, you know, an exploration geologist or the CEO of, you know, of Newmont, thinking about the parts of the world you're working in that way is a pretty useful way to do it. And I think the salmon gold idea ultimately is this idea of like, let's do some good with these historical impacts together. And then we can open up space about talking about what we do next. And so it's almost like it should, I think it should be an added feature of, of exploration geology is the, is the kind of geology of, of those the historical impacts and what to do with them. Like they're, they're actually opportunities, right? To unlock value and to unlock relationships. It's aspirational. And every exploration geologist I know, like we all do, is we, we use anything, we use any legacy that's there, any old workings, any old mine operation as our exploration tools, right? right. And, and sometimes it plays into what you're thinking about. And sometimes it's just, oh, that's a problem. Right. Yeah. So it's a different, totally different mindset. And then the other thing, and it gets back a little bit to the kind of thinking about the, you know, the mentality and the approach of thinking about legacy issues as a value. Like if you think about critical minerals or transition minerals and how they exist in tailings or, or bodies that are no longer active, there's, you know, there's the same model might be applied that way where you can, and we're looking at those kinds of options as well and opportunities where historically mined areas could be improved and new value brought from out of what we see now as waste. And so to me, that's the same kind of thinking and, and approach. Let's use what the map of the past to actually identify op- opportunity areas for the future. And in the process, add the restoration piece. If we can just figure out the funding side of that, and we can. What can we get out of the tailings and what can we get out of the urban waste? Yeah. yeah. Well, that was the other thing I was going to ask you about. When we last uh, had sort of peripheral discussions with Apple around the RFG conference, you know, the whole thing at that point was that everything was going to be recycled. There'd be no new, you know, inputs of metal into any Apple product. That's the the ambition. But presumably, like with the partnership with you, they've they've figured out that in the immediate future, that's not not yeah. yet feasible. I mean, I think their ambition is that remains to be that. And and then, but then the question is between now and that vision, what do you do and how do you be innovative and, and forward leaning? And so that's what this is, right? Salmon gold arguably is the first biodiversity positive gold produced. I mean, doing more than required. I think projects like this are of interest to them with that vision out there, like this is, there's a long pathway, right? There's a, there's a, it's not going to happen overnight. Well, but in many ways, this is even more beneficial than recycling. You could argue, right? If we can scale it. So this is the question, the fundamental question for this project is, can we scale it? We've been at five sites and done seven projects. Okay, great. But can we scale it? (laughs) And what does it take so that, we could continue to scale and others may come in and say, hey, we can do the same model. Excellent. Let's go. But that's the question. And I think if we can do that, then it opens up the door for, you know, it won't just be Apple and Tiffany who want the gold and the copper and whatever. They're going to, there'll be many buyers of this type of a product. Whether you want to go through the cost of bringing it through the supply chain or not, even on a mass balance approach, knowing that, hey, that refiner is producing 25% 25% of its, of its product is from biodiversity-positive mining operations around the world or in this region. That, to me, is if we can do that, then we've succeeded. Thank you to Hartwig Frimmel, Britt Brunel, and Steve Desposito for sharing your expertise and your insights with us. And many thanks to all of you, our listeners, for joining us. I'm Ann Thompson, and it's been a pleasure to think about some of the ways we can solve the puzzles of our industry, from deposit models to data analysis and exploration, to achieving net gains for biodiversity and rehabilitation of mine sites. We've got more episodes coming up, so please look out next week for Canadian Copper Gold Porphyries with host Hallie Keevil. This is Season 2 of Discovery to Recovery, and all the episodes are available at segweb.org slash podcasts and most other places you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow the SEG and Goldspot on Twitter, LinkedIn, and other social media channels to get notified about new releases. 
This episode was produced by your host with support from our production team, Aisha Ahmed, Holly Keeble, and Sam Weatherly. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Catch you next time.